Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's podcast is brought to you by our wonderful t-shirt store. If you're interested in getting a t-shirt featuring our podcast and one of many different dinosaur designs, then head over to bit.ly slash I Know Dino store, all lowercase. This week in our 248th episode, we have an incredible amount of news, <laughs> including a new sauropodomorph from South Africa. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Polacanthus, and of course, our fun fact. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons who keep the podcast running. And this week, we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Ricky, William, Red Sox Rex, Wouter, Shirak, and Moss Utah Raptor. Yeah, thank you so much for all of your support. It really means a lot to us, and we mention this a lot, but it really does help us keep this podcast going, so thank you. And if you want to join this growing community of amazing dinosaur enthusiasts, then check out our page, patreon.com slash Dino. Jumping into the news, we have a new dinosaur. Thanks to Velociraptor256 for mentioning it on our Discord server. This one was published in Pure J and written by Kimberly Chappelle, Paul Barrett, and others. And in it, they describe Ninguervu Intloco, which is in the Osa language. I did my best to pronounce that properly. The full name translates to gray skull, and researchers have been calling it that for years. The skull is gray, and therefore, why not call it gray skull? Makes sense. <laughs> but they, for a long time, thought that it was just a regular Massospondylus caranatus, which was described way back in the 1800s. And it's a sauropodomorph. It was collected by the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa, and it sat in their collections for a long time. It's interesting, a lot of the articles about it are like new species found that's been overlooked for 30 years. Yeah, even though that happens a lot. It does. And it's also not a new species. It's a new genus. But I guess a lot of people don't know what a genus is, so they go with species. So Massospondylus fans already know a lot about Inguervu because obviously they're very similar if it's been considered as a Massospondylus for a long time. So just like Massospondylus, it's an early Jurassic sauropodomorph. This one was found in the Elliott Formation. Not too surprising since that's where a lot of the South African stuff comes from. It's bipedal. It's got a similar small boxy head to Massospondylus. It's got the same peg-like teeth. It's also probably an herbivore, although they say it may have eaten the occasional animal. I assume that if that applies to Inguervu, it probably applies to Massospondylus as well, since they're so similar. Whatever the opportunity is, right? Yeah, for sure. And it's also, in this case, its body is significantly quicker looking than later sauropods. So by looking at it, you'd think like, well, maybe it was just fast enough <laughs> to catch a couple of things. Like it doesn't look like a theropod. It's still a lot bulkier around the hips and everything because, you know, it's got to digest the plant matter. But it might have been quick enough for some slow Jurassic things that didn't notice it in time. It also has pretty good claws on its hands, too. And they're definitely hands. There's no question that it was bipedal. They don't look like they would have been very useful as legs. Previously, researchers thought that maybe it was just a different life stage of Massospondylus because it's a little bit smaller and the proportions of it are a little bit different. But since finding the Inguervu specimen, we've recovered a full growth series of Massospondylus. So we now know exactly what it looks like from hatchling all the way up to adult. There are hundreds of these 
dinosaurs found and tons of complete skulls as well. So we have a really good idea about massive spondylus. That makes it easy to differentiate. Yeah, exactly. So when you compare Inguervu to massive spondylus, you notice a few big differences. For one thing, it's about three meters or 10 feet long compared with four to six meters for massive spondylus. So maybe about half the size. It's a lot smaller. The growth rings on the bone are also very close together. So it was either an adult or very close to an adult, which also eliminates the possibility of maybe it was just still growing because we can tell it's an adult. But the main difference between them is that the skull is, quote, much more robust, end quote. Especially some elements of the skull are a lot thicker. So it's like a bulkier head. (laughs) And that's the kind of thing that you don't usually see in individual variation. So it looks like it's definitely its own species at the very least. The Nguervu holotype includes a complete articulated skull, which is free of any significant breaks or distortion. Wow. Yeah, it's in really great shape. And it's full of matrix. So they just kind of left it as a block, which is probably why I got the nickname for the skull, because the skull looks so great. And in the study, they threw it in their CT scanner because that university has its own CT scanner, so they can just put whatever they want in there. (laughs) And you can see all of the bones in great detail. They also found a nearly complete body, which is almost completely articulated as well. It has full arms, legs, hands, feet, tons of vertebrae, and everything in between. It's not really missing much at all, although a few bones were eroded or missing from the skeleton, just from the preservation process. But it looks like it was buried as the full animal and wasn't scavenged or anything like that. After Nguervu, we now have a total of at least six or maybe seven sauropodomorphs from South Africa, according to Paul Barrett, who apparently is Chappelle's advisor. So the story goes that Chappelle was going through the collections, stumbled upon the skull and was like, this looks a little different. Let me look into it. Discovered it was its own species and or genus. And then now we have the paper. (laughs) It's really interesting to me that they classified Nguervu as its own genus and not just another species under Massospondylus because Barrett named another Massospondylus species Massospondylus kaale 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, they named a subspecies of Massospondylus and now they're naming something that looks a lot like Massospondylus as its own genus. So there might be some jockeying (laughs) for phylogenetic position going on later. Or the skull was really that different? Yeah, maybe. I think the other thing it could be is that Massospondylus kaale only had a partial skull, so there weren't as many unique traits to differentiate it, whereas Ninguervu has the really complete skull as well as a whole body to go with it. But if we find a more complete kaale, maybe they'll want to give it its own genus name later. Next, thanks to Jurassic Ben 27 who shared this one with us. There's an update on Mission Jurassic. That's an international team of American, British, and Dutch scientists that are excavating in North Wyoming in the U.S. in the Morrison Formation. And this includes Phil Manning from the University of Manchester, who's also a scientist in residence at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. So this team thinks that there could be more than 100 dinosaurs within this one square mile area, including a new species. And so far, they found four or five sauropods, footprints, and many fossil plants. Manning said, quote, there's probably enough dinosaur material here to keep a thousand paleontologists happy for a thousand years. That's a lot of work to do. Yes. Well, they actually only have 20 years to do it because the Children's (laughs) Museum has signed a 20-year exploration lease on the land. And that's why 
Manning is working with many colleagues, including his co-chief scientist, Victoria Egerton. So the exact location is not being shared to protect the fossils. But somewhere in northern Wyoming. That is quite epic. Mm-hmm. Maybe they need to get some other museums involved if it's enough for a thousand paleontologists. They're working on it, yeah. There's a lot of interested museums. That's good. A team from the University of Alberta has been exploring the bone beds at Pipestone Creek, which is near the Philip J. Curry Museum in Alberta, Canada. Garrett and I have been there. Yeah, we saw a bunch of people working on it in the early days of the podcast. <laughs> yes, including <laughs> Phil Curry. <laughs> The site is known for hadrosaur fossils, and at one site they found a group of juvenile hadrosaurs, and they're trying to figure out what happened and what species it is. And at another site, they've gotten a variety of small dinosaurs and turtles, fish, crocodilians, and a mammal tooth. We'll update it from when we hear more. I think when we were there, they were looking at a site that was full of ceratopsians. That sounds familiar. We sort of just barged in on them. In Scotland, the Scottish government's working on better protecting the fossils on the Isle of Skye, which is also known as Dinosaur Isle, and they've issued a nature conservation order, and that means that fossils can only be removed for scientific purposes or to preserve them, and residents are being asked to report any suspicious activity. And this is because in the past, some of the locations have been damaged and some fossils have been removed in what looks like an organized search for valuable specimens, and that includes some dinosaur footprints. So hopefully this order helps. In India, a group of scientists are pushing for a bill that will designate and safeguard fossil sites, and this bill is called the Geoheritage Conservation and Promotion Bill. Many sites in India known for fossils have either been shut down by landowners or developed, and then the fossils were lost. And in India, paleontology isn't that big. Universities have geology departments, but they don't offer many paleontology courses, and there's also not a place to preserve notable finds. Mm. But they do have some great fossils and a lot of cool dinosaurs have come out of India. So hopefully this goes through. Yeah, get a nice new museum. Yeah. Place to store them. That's a good way to start. Yes, I do think there are museums being built. In Romania, new dinosaur nests have been found. They're most likely from a hadrosaur, maybe Telmatosaurus, that is one that lived in the area in the late Cretaceous. Research started three years ago, and Dino Park Raznov, which is a dinosaur-themed park, opened a new exhibit of the real egg nests and replicas of the nests with hatchlings so people can see. In London, the Natural History Museum has made their holotype of Mantellosaurus more widely available for research by digitizing it. So they use laser and handheld scanners to make 3D models of each bone, and the goal is to make it available to scientists around the world. So this is really good because then you can compare and study the holotype to other fossils and dinosaurs. And Mantellosaurus was discovered in 1914. It was originally thought to be a guanodon. And this holotype is about 86% complete. It took the team four days and two nights to scan each piece. And during the day, they did their work in front of the museum visitors and then answered questions. Some of the bones couldn't be removed from the case because they've been permanently installed in the case in the hall. This is the same hall that has the blue whale. And used to have Dippy. Yes, used to have Dippy. And Mantellosaurus was moved there in 2017. And it's kind of off to the side. It's probably good because the dinosaur hall is so jam-packed. But it's really cool because you can walk all the way around it in this glass case. I actually thought about when I see dinosaurs like that, that you can really get up close and all around. I always think like, could I digitize this using my phone by taking (laughs) like a hundred (laughs) pictures? I haven't done it yet though. Yeah. It wouldn't be quite as good as what this team did since they took apart the bones. Yeah, not even close. Well, they, yeah, they opened the case, took apart the dinosaur, scanned each piece, then put it back together. 
<laughs> That's the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so Susanna Maidman and the team will write a paper to re-describe the holotype because they found discrepancies between previous descriptions and then what they've observed just scanning. I'm sure if it was described back in 1914. Mm-hmm. In Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia, the Central Museum of Mongolian Dinosaurs recently opened a new exhibition hall, which is themed Paleozoic Era. It took them eight months to prep and has dinosaurs and animals that are older than dinosaurs on display. And also related to that, 14 exhibits of Mongolian dinosaurs are touring through Mongolia, Japan, and the U.S. And this started with the Dinosaur Expo 2019 in Tokyo, Japan at the National Museum of Nature and Science. And it includes dinosaurs like Dinochirus. Unfortunately, I couldn't find much on what's going on when it comes to the U.S., but maybe we'll hear more when it's here. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. It's nice to know that it'll definitely come here. Mm -hmm. In Laurel, Maryland, Dinosaur Park has at least one more open house this summer on September 7th, if you're looking for something to do. Well, they actually have open houses on the first and third Saturdays of the month from noon to 4 p.m. So Dinosaur Park has Acrocanthosaurus and the Maryland State Dinosaur, Astrodon Johnstoni, which is the largest dinosaur in the eastern U.S. It weighed 50 tons. And local paleontologist and University of Maryland professor, Dr. Peter Kranz, works with the site. He also found a dinosaur track in Maryland, which was the first one reported since 1895. Ooh. Yeah. And this park has a lot of programs to search for fossils. You're not allowed to dig or remove anything you find, but there's a lot of volunteers and a lot of opportunities to learn about what paleontologists do and to find fossils. You got news that Trix the T-Rex is back in Leiden at the updated Naturalist Biodiversity Center in the Netherlands. And Trix has been touring Europe for the past two years. I think we mentioned it at some point while the museum was getting renovated. And now she's back starting August 31st. And I found out that the museum nicknamed her Trix after Princess Beatrix. Pretty cool. Everybody wants to see a T-Rex. Yeah. There aren't a lot of original T-Rexes available in Europe. So that's... Definitely a good one to go see. Yes. This trick is for kids. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. <laughs> Dr. Stephen Salisbury from the University of Queensland in Australia and an award-winning French video artist and sculptor Angelica Marcoul are working on a visual arts project called On the Trail of Dinosaurs, which will be coming out next year. There's going to be a video installation and replicas of dinosaur tracks based on the tracks of the Dampier Peninsula near Broome, which is in a really remote area. So the idea is to make them more accessible to a wider audience. And the indigenous people of the area have also a deep cultural connection with these tracks. It sounds like that might be explored in the project as well. So that'd be really cool to see. Yeah. Really quick, couldn't help it. This, there was a really cute story about a two-year-old who visited the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences and they have a big sauropod life-size model on display and it's got a wound on its leg. And this girl gave the leg a hug because she wanted to help the dinosaur feel better. And apparently, that's, she's not the first kid to want to make that dinosaur feel better. In the past, they found Band-Aids on the leg. <laughs> when we visited that museum, I also gave that dinosaur a hug. It's just so huggable. It is. In Hermosa, South Dakota, a rancher, Kenny Brown, recently retired, and he's now spending his time volunteering at the School of Mines Paleontology Research Lab prepping fossils. And he said that a paleontologist from the school visited his school when he was in fourth grade, and that started his passion for fossils. But he decided to ranch, and when he was young, his father opened the family ranch to the School of Mines students, and they ended up naming a mosasaur after him, Hinosaurus Ken Browneye. It's pretty fun. And Brown said that he's learned a lot through this partnership. 
And he's also bequeathed his 1,300-acre ranch to the School of Mines to help inspire future fossil hunters. Holy cow. Yeah. That's quite the gift. It is. National Fossil Day is coming up in the U.S. on October 16th, and there's already a lot of events planned. So the PLOS One blog keeps an updated list of all these events. So far, I saw something going on in at least 19 states, either in parks, museums, or libraries. And a lot of them are having a fossil day or a dinosaur day with fossil hunts and talks. And we'll share the link so you can check it out, see if there's something near you. Next, thanks to O'Neill, who reached out and shared this cool tidbit with us. So O'Neill was listening to our episode where we talked about the dinosaur puppet at Universal Studios, and he's worked as a manager at an animatronic dinosaur park, and they had a backpack juvenile T-Rex puppet, which could be what they use at Universal or something similar. So O'Neill said, quote, I've been inside it a few times. It's like a spaceship on the inside, which switches for everything. Typically, we have a fan inside for airflow and a monitor hooked up to a camera that is positioned in the right nostril of the puppet and then all types of controls for the eyes and jaw. We also had a headset that we wore to make the noises that were hooked up to a guitar distortion pedal and then an internal speaker. The weight of the puppet was between 70 to 80 pounds, depending on which puppet we used that day, and performers were only allowed to be inside for 30 minutes max. Pretty cool to know. Thanks for the insight. The juvenile T-Rex that we had at our wedding had a similar rule. I know that there were a couple of performers and they switched out every 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think it was there for like an hour or two. It wasn't there for too long, so they must have run out of performers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know some of our patrons also have businesses that have these puppets could go to events and we've heard the similar things about the time limit. Yeah. Yeah, it's not... It's not light. There's a lot of latex and paint and stuff on top of those. On August 29th, the U.S. Postal Service is issuing four new T-Rex stamps with what's called a lenticular element, and that gives it more depth and simulates motion. Sort of like a hologram. Yes, exactly. So they do this by, quote, applying a transparent ridge plastic overlay that alters the viewer's perception of the scene when the stamp is rotated slightly. So yeah, sounds exactly like a holographic. We've talked about these stamps before, but I don't think we confirmed the dates. So August 29th, which is the day after this episode airs, <laughs> there's four designs. One's of a newly hatched T-Rex that's fuzzy. There's two juvenile T-Rex, which are of the nation's T-Rex. And then there's a skeletal T-Rex. Nice. I'm going to have to get some new stamps. Mm-hmm. And last, Nickelodeon has a new animated series coming out September 14th, Lego Jurassic World Legend of Isla Nublar, which is a prequel to Jurassic World, and it follows Claire and Owen around the park. And they have to deal with runaway dinosaurs, park construction, and tropical weather, and that description to me sounds a lot like the park builder games. (laughs) Like somebody was playing that game and thought, you know it would be cool (laughs) if we made a kid's show about this. Yep. And before we get into our dinosaur of the day, we want to remind you that we have some amazing t-shirts available on our t-shirt store, and they include Allosaurus, Gorgosaurus, Parasaurolophus, headphones (laughs) (laughs) on the dinosaurs, (laughs) at least on some of them, in a wide variety of colors and sizes, and also not just t-shirts. You can get these things printed on all sorts of different things. So if you'd like to get some new dinosaur gear and also support our podcast, then please head over to bit.ly slash I know dino store. All lowercase. No spaces. <laughs> and now on to our dinosaur of the day, Polacanthus, which was a request from Marcos. So thanks. 
Polycanthus was an ankylosaur that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now England in the Upper Wessex Formation. It was a quadrupedal ornithischian. It's not very well known, especially the skull, but it is estimated to be about 16 feet or 5 meters long, and Gregory Paul estimated it to weigh 2 tons. It had relatively long hind limbs, and the body had armor plates and spikes. Polycanthus also had a large pelvic or sacral shield, which is the bone over the hips. The holotype has four rows of larger osteoderms on the side with smaller ossicles. In the late 1800s, John Whitaker Hulk suggested that the tail had two rows of osteoderms on each side. Franz Nopsha in 1905 thought that the tail and front of the body had two parallel rows of spikes, one on each side. William Blows in 1987 mostly agreed with Nopsha, but said that there were three spike types. The type species is Polycanthus foxi, and it was found in 1865 on the Isle of Wight by Reverend William Fox. The genus name means many thorns or many prickles. It's a pretty good description for a lot of ankylosaurs. Many prickles. Oh, yes. True. (laughs) They're a prickly bunch. (laughs) So as you can guess, the name refers to the spikes on its armor. And then the species name, of course, refers to fox. Fox at first was going to have his friend Alfred Tennyson name the dinosaur, and Tennyson suggested naming it Euacanthus vectianus, but this wasn't accepted. Fox mentioned the find in a lecture to the British Association, and then he let Richard Owen name it, and he named it Polycanthus foxi. The Illustrated London News printed an anonymous article with Fox's lecture, but there's no corresponding publication by Owen. So some people think that Thomas Huxley named the dinosaur, others think it was Owen, Fox, or even somebody anonymous. The holotype of Polycanthus consists of an incomplete skeleton. This includes vertebrae, sacra, most of the pelvis, most of the left hind leg, ribs, chevrons, ossified tendons, and spikes. Nice. Yeah, pretty good for an incomplete specimen. The early illustrations gave it a generic head because they only knew the back half. John Whitaker Hulk published the first description of the dinosaur in 1881 and said that it had deteriorated over the years. The armor had mostly fallen apart. But then Fox died that same year, and his fossils were acquired by the British Museum of Natural History. And Caleb Barlow reassembled Polycanthus, even though Hulk thought it couldn't be done. So Hulk re-described Polycanthus in 1887, this time focusing on the armor. And then in 1905, Franz Nopsha described it again and then illustrated the spikes. There may be other possible specimens of Polycanthus. They included two found in 1843 by John Edward Lee. More have been referred, and they include parts of the armor or single bones. In 1979, William Blows excavated a second partial skeleton with parts of the skull. Many species have been named, but only one species is considered to be valid now. And that happens a lot with dinosaurs that were named in the 1800s. So other species names include Polycanthus beckelsi, which is now considered to be a junior synonym, Polycanthus marshi, which Blows claimed in 1987 that Hoplitosaurus was Polycanthus marshi, but this has now been rejected. Polycanthus rejuagensis, named by Blows in 1996 after reviewing fossils found in 1985 that were thought to be iguanodon. It's about 30% longer than Polycanthus foxi, but in 2015 Blows named it as a separate genus, Horshamosaurus. There's also Polycanthus ponderosus. Nopsha named it in 1928 based on a left scapula that Gideon Mantell had thought was Hylaeosaurus, as well as a tibia and humerus from another specimen. But it turns out that the tibia and humerus were found on white and their casts, while the <laughs> scapula was from Bolney. Oops. <laughs> it happens. It used to happen a lot more. <laughs> Walter Coombs renamed Polycanthus foxi to Hylaeosaurus foxi in 1971, but 
this has also not been accepted. Some people have thought that Polycanthus was the same as Hyliosaurus armatus, but Blows rejected that in 1987 based on age and anatomical differences. It's tricky without a head. Yes. And our fun fact of the day is that there's new evidence that some theropods in Mongolia laid eggs in groups at nesting sites. It's kind of a big communal, let's all lay eggs together kind of moment. Fun. (laughs) This is from a recent article in Geology by Kohei Tanaka et al. And they found 15 nests with over 50 eggs combined. And they can tell that it's a colony because there's a unique two-layer sediment infilling the eggs. So there's this red band in between the layers and it goes right inside some of the eggs because some of the eggs were filled by sediment after they hatched or were predated or otherwise broken open. So you can see they were all deposited at the exact same time because a lot of times we're not sure if it's just a repeat visitor laying eggs in kind of the same area or, you know, thousands of years apart. There's just different animals that are like, oh, it's next to a river. That's a good place to lay some eggs. So it's pretty unique in that way that we can tell they're all buried at the exact same time. And therefore, since they're eggs, they weren't sitting around for years and years that they were all laid in the same season. The eggs are about 80 million years old. They didn't guess at a genus, unfortunately, but 80 million years ago in Mongolia, we had raptors, oviraptors, tyrannosauroids, and therizinosaurs. So there's a, a lot of different things that it could have been. <laughs> they think that the eggs were incubated, although they're unsure if they were incubated by the body of the animal resting on them or if they were buried. It seems like maybe not buried since they ended up getting this layer of sediment right through the middle, but that's just me talking. Interestingly, they think this is evidence that colonial nesting, quote, likely evolved initially among non-brooding, non-avian dinosaurs to increase nesting success, end quote. And I'm not sure why they say that after saying that they're not sure if they were incubated by the animal brooding or not, but I guess it's just because we're pushing back the origin of these colonial nests earlier, and maybe that means that, well, if they were nesting in colonies so early, maybe it was before they learned how to brood. I'm, I'm not really sure. There's lots of birds and crocodilians that do this today, so it's not too surprising that dinosaurs were doing this all that time ago. The number one reason that people usually cite is that it helps for predator defense because it's just more eyes looking out (laughs) and potentially helping you gang up and maybe scare off a predator depending on how big you are compared to the predator. It can also be a good way to meet up with mates If you think about things like an albatross, where they separate for long periods of time, if they're meeting up at the same nesting site, it's just a convenient place to meet because the main thing they do together is mate. (laughs) They can lay eggs and then go their separate ways for the rest of the year and then come back to the mating site together. And then depending on if they reuse nests, it can also save energy because if you're just coming back to the same nest, you don't have to worry about scrounging around, figuring out how you're going to lay the eggs, how you're going to place them, all that kind of detail. You can just go right back to the same spot, which a lot of animals do today as well. So it makes sense that dinosaurs were doing this a long time ago, but it's cool that we finally have evidence that sort of proves it. Yes, definitely. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you want to join our growing community, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.